0: Good afternoon, Dr. We're here from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 29th of September, 2021. We've been talking about natural killer cells and epigenetics in association with human aging. And I want to hopefully complete that cycle of lectures right now with you. First thing to do is to give you a summary of where we were from the last, I guess, three lectures. DNA methylation definitely plays an important role in the regulation of pro-inflammatory cytokine production such as interferon gamma and the perforin granzyme expression system that we see in natural killer cells and all of that following an interleukin-15 stimulation. So you have HDAC inhibitors, that's histone deacetylase inhibitors have been known to suppress interferon gamma expression, and that's after the cytokine stimulation, that is IL-15. So remember, too, we talked about things called bromodomains, which are readers of the epigenome, particularly of the methylome. And we call these BET or BET bromodomains. And we told you that BET bromodomain inhibitors will potently downregulate They interfere on gamma production even more than what we see by inhibiting, for example, uh, the HDAC. And that supports a role for chromatin acetylation as well as methylation because bromodomains will read both methylomes and acetylomes. And therefore, a specific recognition from bromodomains on the acetyl lysine concentration Uh, and that's associated with reader domains, all linked into natural killer cell function. The phenotypic consequences of cytokine repression, therefore, probably are well explained by a global increase in the histone-3 lysine-27 methylation pattern upon uh, providing the demethylase inhibitor known as gskj4 remember from last time that 2018 paper from jbc which i gave you in the show notes so <clears throat> you get a net besides that okay you get a net uptick of glycolytic genes and i mentioned this to you as well upon gskj4 And that suggests that methylation results in an elevated rate of basically aerobic glycolysis. And with this, an increased flux, usually through the mTORC1 pathway, and that very likely provides the necessary metabolic precursors for proliferation of the cells and all the effector functions that you see in natural killer cells. So the observed inhibition of bone-eroding osteoclastogenic rankle expression, remember now we're talking about the rheumatoid arthritic patients, also induced by JSKJ4, the demethylase inhibitor, suggested to me that there was a general anti-inflammatory phenotype via demethylase inhibition in at least these particular subspecies of innate immune cells. These are lymphoid cells, but they're innate, okay? So they're innate uh, like lymphoid cells. We've talked about these extensively in the past. That's what natural killer cells are, okay? Now you get an idea. So that means natural killer cells are at an axis uh, between what I call the innate and the acquired immune responses, I don't just call them that. That's how they are described in immunology uh, lecture. And so because of that, they can transduce a global mobile signaling pattern of activity via the ontological pathways involving epigenetics, genetics, and the environment, particularly a pro-inflammatory environment or an anti-inflammatory environment, thus reprogramming cellular fate, okay? So that's basically where we are in this discussion. That's where we stopped last time, right? Okay, so I've got more to say about this. What do you think the verifying literature would require for us to understand this better when we think about all of the immunoepigenetic Tailoring of the individual immune cellular events. What else do we need to know? So, this is why you listen to authentic biochemistry. I've been talking to you about epigenetic patterning and a particular type of immune cell called natural killer. I talked about the fact that if you inhibit a demethylase, you uh, alter the activity of natural killer cell populations. Remember, we went through all of this between the cytotoxicity. And the pro-inflammatory response. Okay. That was the whole key to that paper. Now, what I'm doing is I'm spanning out. And I'm saying, well, okay, now that we know about methylation pattern, and we know that the methylome is required for that response, because if you inhibit the demethylase, in fact, you maintain a methyl, a specific methylome, again on those very discrete lysine residues, lysine 27, you can have multiple methylation patterns on that lysine. And that's all histone-3. So it's in the involvement, of course, of chromatin remodeling, ultimately. So the key is what is feeding into this. So that's what I do at Authentic Biochemistry. I keep looking. I found a paper published in the journal Prostaglandins, leukotrienes and Essential Fatty Acids. It was published, oh, in the summer of 2015. I remember when this paper came out. And the paper was asking an interesting question. Is there a possible link between omega-3 fatty acids? Remember those with double bonds that are three carbons away from the terminal methyl group on those fatty acids. The most common ones you think about, the most common omega-3 fatty acid is an essential fatty acid. That's alpha-linolenic acid. But when you think about omega-3 fatty acids that are purchased at uh, health food stores, those are typically um, called fish oils. And you know that it's not really the fish that produce those fatty acids, but the algae that the fish eat because animals don't put double bonds in that particular position in fatty acids. I went through all this fo- with you before. So algae, of course, are uh, a green algae in particular, phytoplankton, type of algae are plants. And plants in general will make omega-3 fatty acids. In fact, that's how you know, we normally think about them in terms of higher plants, right? Okay. So that's a so think about docosahexaenoic acid, nycosapentaenoic acid. Those two uh, omega-3 fatty acids are the ones that are called fish oil. But this paper here is talking about dietary omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin B12, And in fact, folic acid, remember, that's going to provide a methyl group in the methionine pathway making S-adenosylmethionine, right? So all of those considered nutrients, those are all essential. Do they involve anything related to bioenergetics or membrane-mediated DNA methylation patterns? It's a question. So what has been discovered is that pregnant maternal intake and metabolism of, of those three nutrients, omega-3 fatty acids, B12, and folic acid. Uh, and the association with fetal lipid metabolism has suggested that the maternal omega-3 fatty acids and B12 have an effect on an enzyme known as phosphatidylethanolamine N-methyltransferase. Now that P-E-N-methyltransferase will obviously make fastidylcholine because volatile choline is trimethylated ethanolamine, right? Okay. So it looks like the pregnant maternal intake metabolism of those nutrients, in association with fetal metabolism, is linked to volatile and methyltransferase activity, and and peroxisome proliferator-activated receptor PPAR adiponectin, which is in the dipokine, and the epigenetic processes that we just were describing, chromatin methylation. Oh, yes. And indeed, here's the linkage. AMP kinase, adenosyl monophosphate kinase, AMP kinase, remember that? Very important intermediate uh, in signaling pathway. That's a kinase related to um, a decrease in effective concentrations of ATP. So the cell is being signaled to make more ATP. Okay, So AMP kinase, it's a kinase, can phosphorylate the enzyme DNA methyltransferase 1, DNMT1. Of course, phosphorylation of DNMT1 by AMP kinase decreases the methylation of promoters by several uh, orders of magnitude, for certain specific mitochondrial biogenesis transcription factors. Now, if you decrease the methylation of promoters for these mitochondrial biogenesis transcription factors, you might ask, which direction does that run into? Actually, what that will do, because the amkinase is the kinase phosphorylating DNMT1, and that's how you get the decrease in methylation, it's going to actually enhance Mitochondrial biogenesis, because it's going to allow for transcription factors to be expressed again at the chromatin remodeling level. And all that was published in the International Journal of Biological Sciences again in 2015. So two papers we talk, we're talking about combining here. So atomat, as I've been mentioning, ad- a- s methionine is the methylation source that can be diverted now for phosphatidylcholine biosynthesis. I just explained it to you with the uh, Prostaglandins, such fatty acids, paper, uh, and of course you make PC from PE uh, via that enzyme, the N-methyltransferase, and so that's going to alter that because okay, so you're going to make more PC. But what is that going to do to the membrane? It's going to alter membrane biophysical conditions. It's going to change the fluidity and the uh, presentation of receptors within those membranes. So many, many, many. Membrane, biophysical, and biochemical predicates are gonna be changed. And that includes those associated with mitochondria, peroxisomes, and of course, the plasma membrane. So the competition for SNS-methionine between membrane retailing and DNA histone methylation would affect the epigenome of immune cells. You understand. Now, a paper published in Science Science Signaling in 2017, don't worry, I'll put this in the show notes, tells me the following. Adenosine monophosphate-activated protein kinase, the amkinase I just mentioned to you, of course, is one of the regulators for cellular energy homeostasis. And it conducts this particular event by controlling the phosphorylation state of multiple different proteins, including some of which are uh, enzymes involved in metabolism, enzymes in, and proteins involved in nutrient transport, as well as transcription factors, like the one I was just telling you about. Transcription factors for specifically nuclear genes. Remember, we're about mitochondria biogenesis, but the genes responsible for mitochondria biogenesis are by and large, of course, in the nucleus. So those nuclear genes are gonna be involved in mitochondrial biogenesis, and of course, ultimately uh, function. So this particular paper looked at AMP kinase-mediated induction of gene expression. And what they found was that there was a consensus phosphorylation in three proteins via AMP kinase. And there were all three of them were involved in nucleosomal remodeling, okay? Remember the nucleosome is gonna be impacted, right? by this histone modification, that's methylation, and the DNA methylation. So you've got DNA methyltransferase 1, you've got retinoblastoma binding protein 7, that's rbpp 7 and you have the histone acetyltransferase 1 or Hat one Now, you already know that DNMT1 mediates DNA methylation, And what it normally does is limit transcription factor access to promoters when you have a heavy methylone. And we also know that that is inhibited by RBP7. Furthermore, we know the acetylation of histones by HAT1 creates a more relaxed chromatin DNA structure. And that, of course, favors global what? Transcription, obviously, right? U-chromatin. So, AMP kinase-mediated phosphorylation, therefore, results in, p- from subsequent to understanding of this paper that was published in 2017, and the activation of HAT1 and the inhibition of the methyltransferase this is obviously going to promote transcription. So for DNMT1, the inhibition was both a direct effect of the kinase, of the AMP kinase, because you get an increased interaction with that protein and inhibits, and that's the RBP7 and inhibits the methyltransferase. So the study was done in human umbilical vein cells. Remember, we're talking this whole process of maternal and um, uh, developing infant in the uh, uterus interactions on dietary alterations, right? So these studies were done in human umbilical vein cells. And it was discovered that pharmacological AMP kinase activation or, okay, so amkinase activation, or another way of doing the same event is by what is known as a pulsatile shear stress, which is going to alter membrane fluidity among other things, and also cellular fate, right? And it will trigger nucleosomal remodeling because of the stress, and it'll basically cause a decrease in cytosine, that's carbon 5 cytosine methylation in CPG islands, that will lead to an increased expression of nuclear genes, encoding factors involved in the mitochondrial biogenesis and function. Which ones? The ones I mentioned a while back. Proxyproliferated activated receptor gamma and proxyproliferated activated receptor gamma coactivator 1-alpha. It's PGC-1 alpha. Also, something called transcription factor A or TFAM, and the uncoupling proteins two and three, UCP2 and three. Now, those are going to be involved in mitoc- um, a, a disruption of mitochondrial respiration. So you have similar effects seen in the aorta. Now, this is in a mouse model given pharmacological AMP kinase activation. So it's showing you it's more than one cellular system. And all of these effects required a specific AMP kinase called the AMP kinase 2 alpha, okay? because there's multiple isoforms of that enzyme. So in the end, the results suggest that AMP kinase mediates mitochondrial gene expression via nucleosomal remodeling, and this is associated with membrane biophysical changes. So AMP kinase promotes mitochondrial biogenesis. Therefore. And function, ultimately, its activity the, of the mitochondria making more ATP ultimately through the electron transport chain, and oxidative phosphorylation, and it does so by phosphorylating the epigenetic factors, DNMT1, the RBPp7, which it works to, to degrade the activity of the methyltransferase, and then the Hat1 activating it. Okay, so I got that off that Science signaling paper uh, published in 2017. So. Let's go a little bit deeper here. A paper published in the Biochemistry and Chemical Biology and Structural Biology and Molecular Biophysics Journal is an eLife Sciences journal. This was published just in 2018, March 2018, so three years ago plus. Tells me that acyl chain asymmetry and polyunsaturation of brain phospholipid facilitates membrane vesiculation but does not increase leakage. Okay, because sometimes you get that with acyl chain asymmetry. So what does this paper say? It says that phospholipids with two polyunsaturated fatty acids make membranes prone to vesiculation. And that means that they are highly permeable. An asymmetric SN1 saturated, SN2 polyunsaturated phospholipid gives you a trade-off here because you get different efficiencies for membrane vesiculation and yet low membrane permeability. So you have biochemistry affecting essentially a biophysical phenomenon, of course. So when you incorporate into phospholipids docosexanoic acid, DHA, of course it's omega-3, it will make membranes more deformable than if you introduce arachidonic acid, which is 20 colon four and that's an omega six. So it looks like fatty acid profiles in specific molecular species coordination and glycerol backbones are gonna be associated with membrane organization, such that the phosphatidylcholine fatty acids are going to be distinct from Either phostoethanolamine or phosphatidyl serine. That means, of course, you make phospholethylamine from phosyl serine by deaminating. So that that means basically that you're going to have an alteration of specific phospholipids of the glycerol phospholipid backbone type that are going to be mediating responses at the epigenetic level because of dietary fatty acids positioned in the one or two of those carbons, of those glycerol uh, lipids, okay? And what that's going to then do is associate with increases or decreases in acetylcylmethionine. So acetylcylmethionine utilization of the methyl group And that's a competition with histone lysines is in part going to be regulated by diet and genetics. And that's going to dictate, as I've just been saying, molecular species, fatty acid content. Okay. And that's going to alter membrane vesiculation, give you efficient membrane vesiculation, but a very low membrane permeability. And that's going to alter that shear response which is going to alter the methylome and the acetylome. You understand? This is the overall global response of, of looking at alterating currents of stress on cellular systems versus AMP kinase, which is a different kind of stress, right? ATP depletion. See, I'm trying to show you that there is a cooperativity, I think that's an okay term to use here, and a an association between two different types of stress phenomena. And this gives you a better focus on what kind of processes could be altered during aging. Because one of the processes that occur during aging is an alteration of the utilization of very long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids versus omega, omega-3 versus omega-6. And their incorporation into membrane lipids in various bioactive membrane systems, such as muscle, uh, both cardiac muscle, skeletal muscle, and endothelial cells, And of course, in the central nervous system, it's even more potently significant, okay? Now, a paper published in American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 2017 is going to take us a little bit, yet a little bit deeper into this, okay? This was published again in 2017. Don't worry, I'll put all this in the show notes. At six months, okay, the N-3, that is omega-3 fatty acid, fatty acid uh, group displays a marked increase in DHA and EPA plasma concentrations. And this is linked to about a 2.5 to 3.5 increase, fold increase, fold increase, as well as a decrease at the same time, methylation of two of the four potential CPG sites that were studied here. Now we're looking at DNA methylation in serum leukocytes. And this is omega-3 fatty acid study. Okay, so we're looking at DNA methylation patterns now back in innate immune cells. So you get a hypomethylation in CPG2 and CPG4 sites, those two out of the four. And that shows a reverse correlation or an anti-correlation to changes in plasma, eicosapentanoic acid concentration, but does not affect DHA. Now, this is curious if you know the biosynthesis of DHA from EPA. I do. And you have to elongate all the way out to 24. Then you put in the last double bond and then you cut back to, uh, to C20 to make to make the EPA. That's how DHA is synthesized from EPA and then EPA from DHA. So there's a storehouse of DHA concentration. So there's a ratio of EPA DHA. Those two very low chain pine saturated fatty acids the omega-3 series. So supplementation with omega-3 fatty acids for six months, therefore what they found, (laughs) linking these two aspects here, right, associates with a global DNA hypomethylation in peripheral blood leukocytes and pbls and so this is a very curious thing so given what we learned from that 2018 jbc paper what i just mentioned to you it could suggest that omega-3 fatty acids might induce inflammatory versus cytotoxic functions in circulating natural killer cells now see now this is very curious right So if you have high levels of omega-3 fatty acids, it's actually going to induce inflammatory versus cytotoxic events. And we know that you get an increase in inflammatory responses and a decrease in cytotoxic events because of the alteration of the natural killer cell subpopulations as you age. Now, does that sound like a contradiction when I tell you that omega-3 fatty acid production becomes more limiting as you age? No, because the placement of these omega-3 fatty acids in specific membrane phospholipids is the key feature here. And not the overall concentration of these fatty acids, free fatty acids, or as acyl is more likely, that you find in the blood. So it's a tissue specificity, you see. That's why there's such high concentration of omega-3 in those bioactive membranes. Right? And... Here, what we're telling you is that omega-3 fatty acids are going to be inducing an inflammatory response when they are settled in those membrane lipids for a long period of time. And then the aging human, if you increase the inflammatory response in natural killer cells at the expense of cytotoxic activity, because you're changing from the um, CD56 bright to the CD56 dim subclass, right? The natural killer cell. What are you going to end up with? You're going to end up with more inflammation. I told you the more inflammation is a hallmark of the aging cell because that can induce then senescence or possibly even necrotosis or ferritosis, which will then induce an inflammatory response. So you're getting some key features here that you wouldn't normally uh, obtain um, uh, from just reading a couple of papers, right? So, real quick, a dialectical conclusion here. This is you're combining a couple of papers, We're, and I'll t- put them in show notes. One is in the Journal of Biomedical Biotechnology, and the other one is in a journal called Blood. Remember that the natural killer cells are an element of the innate immune response, even though they're lymphocytes. And we also explained to you, I think, very well that they're under epigenetic reprogramming, and that natural killer cells are basically a very important, vital source of offense against infection and tumors, not defense, but offense is how the natural killer cells function after all their killers. They function as all immune cells, though. They go through cell surface receptor recognition. And that's followed by an activation and a specific molecular agency that delivers a potent response to a disease state that involves, as we know with NKs, both cytotoxicity and inflammatory response. So cytotoxicity involves degranulation, that's the perforin-granzyme introduction to the cell. <laughs> and that those are lytic enzymes, right? And inflammation, though, involves both attention to and secretion of cytokines, like interferon gamma and TGF-beta. So, control of natural killer cells involves a dialogue between activating and inhibitory receptors. What I'm telling you, those receptors are distributed to multiple cell lineages, including the activating NKP, NKp46 and the NKG2D, right? And inhibitory receptors, like killer cell immunoglobulin-like receptors, are known as KIRs, KIRs, and the NKG analogs. So cure receptors, KR receptors provide an elaboration of the immune response to specific, either pathogenic, xenobiotic, or stress responses, all of which are occurring at at higher levels of a failure to deal with that stress response as one ages. So I'm gonna leave you with that very, very interesting perspective on natural killer cells. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios, 29 of September 2021, saying bye for now.